You're listening to KCBP Community Radio on 95.5 FM and streaming on kcbpradio.org. This is Women of the Valley, where we examine the issues, stories, organizations, and people important to women in our community. We're your hosts, Leah Hassett and Linda Scheller. Today, I'm talking with Bianca Lopez, one of the founders of Valley Improvement Projects, currently the project director. Valley Improvement Projects is a grassroots nonprofit organization working in Stanislaus County and California's northern San Joaquin Valley to improve the quality of life for underrepresented and marginalized communities. They advocate for social and environmental justice. Thank you so much for joining us today, Bianca. Thank you for having us today. It's our pleasure. We first talked with you back in 2017, about three years ago. How has Valley Improvement Projects changed since then? Well, one uh, change that we have had um, as members is there are children in our families now. And um, I myself have had two kids. I have um, Beto, a two-year-old, and Francisco, who was eight months old. And then our, uh, our other um, member also has a child. Uh, so we're kind of just growing um, and starting a new generation here. But that's the most interesting and most challenging thing about VIP in these last two years, as well as um, COVID-19 has forced us to have a more of a visual and virtual presence online. And so that has been um, exciting and, um, and actually has helped our, our movement. Bianca, please tell us what Valley Improvement Projects and other organizations are doing to establish local civilian oversight of law enforcement. So Valley Improvement Project members are um, in collaboration with other organizations like the ACLU and the NAACP and recently organized uh, groups such as Actions Over Hashtags and the Turlock Black Lives Matter groups to bring forth uh, again, um, the request, or now it seems to be a demand to have a police review board here in Modesto. And so recently, the Modesto B did publish our op-ed that we signed on to, which explains the reasons and the types of um, police oversight that we are looking for. Is that online? Where it is online, yeah. So you will be able to find that on Facebook uh, for VIP's page. It's also posted on the ACLU page and then the Modesto B's page on the opinion uh, section. Great. How does uh, civilian police oversight work? There are different models that can be um, used for police oversight. One of the models that, or the model that we are proposing is that of the city of Davis. And uh, this particular model will have an auditor and an investigator and will become uh, something kind of like a commission uh, group out of uh, the council. So the council will appoint people to be part of it and will have reports um, in city council meetings. And the most important part of that is that the um, reports that come out of this commission, this oversight uh, commission, would become public. And so uh, that would allow for transparency and for community trust. How can concerned citizens help to put something like this in place? It's really important to uh, voice support. 
And so there will be a time where we, we ask people to attend um, either virtually or in person. It depends on um, what they're allowing here for the city council meetings, but it's going to be really important for people to show up um, and voice their opinion in support of something like this. So they would be attending their local city council meetings? Correct. And specifically to support something that we are doing here in Modesto, it would be at the Modesto City Council meetings. How does Valley Improvement Projects advocate for criminal justice reform? We do uh, Know Your Rights trainings and we inform and educate people about their rights. Uh, we do a lot of advocacy work uh, regarding um, restorative justice. Some of our tasks or projects or the time that we invest in um, allows for us to be in conversations about, for example, decriminalization of homelessness. We also try to, to help folks understand um, the situation that they're in. Sometimes we do get phone calls with um, people try to ask us questions about how they should move forward with a, a police report or give them access to, to lawyers that may be able to assist. We also participate in a lot of the forums and virtual forums that have been happening now that educate us on, um, for example, the Police Review Oversight Committee. We also share that on our Facebook and make sure that people are informed about these things. Please describe Valley Improvement Project's homeless community outreach and support. Um, since um, we shut down our center a few years ago, our homeless community outreach has looked a lot different. So we used to have a space where we would welcome folks to our center where it would be a cooling place. It, um, we had water. Um, we also would give out used clothing and materials that homeless people were in need. But now we've um, had to shut down, of course, and now our outreach looks a lot different where we are doing more of the advocacy work behind the scenes to get justice um, for these communities. So we also um, work on um, informing people about eviction rights because we are also working on prevention and um, participating in trainings ourselves so that we are informed about current laws um, that prevent um, things like that to happen in our community. Um, we have volunteered at the Beardbrook Park camp that um, was dismantled not too long ago. We are constantly advocating for homeless rights um, with our city representatives. Do you work in conjunction with food banks or providers of like mobile shower units or anything like that? No, we don't do those kinds of direct services. We used to feed um, people at the park, but that has not uh, happened for several years due to our capacity. And then, well, now COVID has affected a lot of that. You're listening to KCBP's Women of the Valley. This is your host, Linda Scheller. Today, I'm talking with Bianca Lopez of Valley Improvement Projects. Bianca, please talk about the effect of COVID-19 on Latino communities. Why are Latinos disproportionately affected? Well, we know that Latino communities and disadvantaged communities in general are always disproportionately affected when any situation or tragic situations happen. And so during COVID-19, uh, Latinos, most of us work in, in jobs that are considered essential 
And here in the Valley, we have a large farm working community who do not have the option to stay home. Um, those jobs were not closed. Um, they were not, um, well, they were deemed essential. So a lot of people were forced to go out and be in spaces and in con working conditions that created a space where COVID, uh, the virus, was more susceptible to be shared and uh, people in our communities are more affected. Also, Latino community are more family oriented. So we are people uh, that like to socialize. Um, a lot of us have big families and it's really difficult to not be around family. Some of our Latino community members um, have large families or multiple families in one home. So it is very difficult to even isolate uh, one member if they were to become infected with COVID-19. Uh, there's just a lot of challenges out in the Latino community, um, not to mention the language barrier. And so um, a lot of information has been shared about COVID-19 and how it spreads and how to prevent it. But I think um, the Latino community has not been receiving a lot of that information um, either in, in the right spaces or um, in a manner where it's accessible. Yeah, I was wondering about Stanislaus County's efforts and other local agencies, how proactive they've been, how quickly they got on the uh, public information in Spanish and other languages, and also testing and data collection specific to different demographics. Can you speak on that? I can tell you, I'm not sure what the county is doing or how much money they're spending on specific things, especially on a particular um, community. But I do know that one of our VIP members, John Mataka, he is uh, the president of the Grayson Neighborhood Council. And he and uh, other members of his community have created a Latino COVID-19 coalition. And I believe this is in support with the Stanislaus County or in collaboration with Stanislaus County. So they have hired um, a, a Latino woman to be able to spread um, and disseminate information to the Latino community in hopes that information is more accessible uh, to this community. But I do know that at some point the, the county has brought testing centers to some spaces, but I'm not sure if they're in Latino communities or in workplaces that most Latinos work in or anything like that. But I do know that this coalition is new and that it has been taken upon the community's hands to be able to force the county to address this issue as a, as a serious one. I believe that um, even though we are 40% of the population, I believe we are about 70 or more percent of those affected by COVID-19. And testing has not been very accessible to the Latino community, I have been doing um, surveys and um, we have COVID relief fund. And in speaking to a lot of the farm workers or just ag workers in general, testing has been very um, hard to get in a timely manner. Um, results are not being shared in a timely manner. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if everybody else is experiencing the same issue, but this is a serious issue because a lot of the um, employers are asking people not to return to work without that letter that says that they are negative or that they have been quarantined for a certain amount of time. And so I've heard stories about um, some of these ag workers who have lost their job because uh, their employer is requiring these documents. 
and it's just not given to them in a timely manner. So well, that's tragic. Very. What resources are currently in place to help the Latino community and other immigrant populations during this pandemic? I know that organizations across the county have been very kind in volunteering to share resources such as food, food boxes or um, food banks have been more generous with their giving. And at this moment, VIP is doing COVID-19 relief funds. So for those that are undocumented, live within the county and work in agricultural jobs, we assist them uh, with a small amount of money to help them in these situations. Um, I've also done the surveys um, with ag workers and through those um, surveys, I've had to uh, share information such as Cal OSHA phone numbers, um, give them information about their rights based on leave. So the FFCRA, which is the Family's First Coronavirus Act, has leave available for some of the people who have been affected by COVID-19. There aren't very many organizations that help with these kinds of issues here, especially if you're undocumented. And so that has been a challenge, um, getting uh, legal support for, for some of these workers um, who work in the field and need some support in, the, in that way. We have collaborated with CCEJN, which is a Central California Environmental Justice Network, to be able to provide these COVID relief funds. But it's not, it's not enough money. Um, it's not enough uh, to, to be able to relieve a lot of the stressors that are brought upon this pandemic on this community. What should our county and state be doing from here on out? I mean, what should we have more of from from these entities? There has to be more um, enforcement, um, holding some of these employers accountable for providing PPE or the appropriate PPE, accountability for some of these legal issues that uh, Latino or even undocumented workers are having. A lot of us are finding that employers are not accessing the these leaves or these rights for for people um whether it be just lack of knowledge or information or the desire to to provide people with these resources but i think the county needs to do a lot more of education to employers and the employees as well and of course in latino communities we're, we don't all speak spanish only but there is a good number of uh, monolingual latinos out there and um, I think they are being underserved. And so one of your questions earlier is, you know, what is the data um, and the testing and all of that information? Is it being collected? And I think that's one of the things that should be taken into consideration uh, by the county and providing more of those, more of that data and make it more visible to the Latino community so that we know that um, how to react or how to respond. Is Valley Improvement Projects currently working to help families facing eviction during this pandemic? We are helping um, families understand their rights regarding eviction. We also do um, advocacy work uh, with the new bills that are presented that would help people with who may be facing eviction and the stop of eviction during this pandemic. We work in collaboration with Project Sentinel and CRLA to be able to do referrals and ask them questions. Um, we are part of several meetings and organizations and committees 
that meet on a regular basis um, and give each other updates um, regarding what families are facing uh, during uh, types of evictions and during this pandemic. What does CRLA stand for? CRLA stands for the California Rural Legal Assistance. How does VIP advocate for housing access and tenant rights? Pre-pandemic, were you working on establishing more affordable housing units? We have, we do advocate for affordable housing to be built. I know that the municipal golf course uh, here has been closed and the city was looking into what are the possibilities in using that land for. And I know that um, one of the things that VIP was advocating was for that space to be used as affordable housing. So things like that and informing the community that these meetings are taking place so that they can voice their opinion. And regarding tenant rights, we've always um, received many calls about can their landlord kick them out just because they wanted to. We always have received those type of calls and, you know, we really refer them to legal assistance if that's what they need. But if they just need an explanation of or to help understand the laws or the uh, tenant rights established by California, then we try to, to explain those to them, but always do the referrals to legal assistance. What local development practices would promote sustainable communities? So we are actually part of the Sustainable Communities Coalition that's here in um, Modesto, and, or that takes place in Modesto. We believe that walkable and bikeable communities and have adequate public transportation systems are part of sustainable communities. Infill development of affordable housing, no sprawl into farmland and open spaces. Of course, access to healthy food and safe drinking water in disadvantaged communities. The reduction of the in-use of biodegradable single-use styrofoam and plastic products such as bottles, bags, cups, and straws. Um, reduction of greenhouse gas emissions that exacerbate climate change clean drinking water, pesticide reduction, those are all part of uh, sustainable communities. And those are things that we advocate for. Like I said, we are part of the Sustainable Communities Coalition here in the county and are constantly participating in in meetings that allow us to um, give voice to the community. So there are meetings through the Tuolumne River Trust and Catholic Charities, they collaborate to host the Sustainable Communities Coalition, and they've been hosting um, SB 1000 calls um, or virtual meeting spaces in the various regions here or communities here in Modesto. And so we, we do our best to get people to participate in those and give voice to people. And so accessibility to be able to do that is one of the things that the the group is doing right now. They are working for advocating for translation at these um, city council meetings because uh, at the moment the city of Modesto does not have a uh, a translator. So if you only spoke Spanish, your participation um, and communication with the city council is very limited. So access is, is very important. You're listening to Women of the Valley. Today's guest is Bianca Lopez speaking about Valley Improvement Projects. Bianca, please tell us about the VIP Clean Vehicle Rebate Program. The uh, Clean Vehicle Program is through a a coalition that we have. It's the California Valley Empowerment Committee. 
we are part of this committee with uh, various organizations like the Little Manila Rising, Leap Institute, Catholic Charities is also part of it. And so what we are doing is we are informing people about low-income folks who qualify for clean vehicle rebates. There are various programs in the city, in our county, and in the state that allow for uh, clean vehicles to become more affordable to people that may not have ever considered buying a electric vehicle or a hybrid plug-in vehicle. What we do is educate folks on those rebates and the reasons why a clean vehicle is important for our health and to improve the air quality um, in the Central Valley. I don't, I'm not sure if you are aware, but Central Valley has the, one of the poorest air qualities in the state. And uh, this is one way that VIP um, promotes um, the improvement of our air quality is through having these rebates accessible to people who may not have considered a clean vehicle but know the importance of it. Where can folks go to get more information about these rebates? Our collaborative is um, the Clean Vehicle Empowerment Collaborative, CVEC. We have uh, nine different organizations that collaborate here. So, And we work with the Central California Asthma, Asthma Collaborative. And so if you go to the uh, California Asthma Collaborative website at sencalasthma.org, uh, you'll be able to click on their projects and um, you will see CVEC's um, outline and uh, the, the various partners. We um, have Central California Asthma Collaborative, uh, Central California Environmental Justice Network, Quinto Sol, Catholic Charities, um, Madera Coalition for Community Justice, Little Manila Rising, and the LEAP Institute. And so these nine organizations are those that are promoting the CVRP programs. Um, we have, through the Central California Asthma Collaborative's website, a page there um, that will explain um, what our organizations do in our local communities and then what um, we do for CVRP. If you go to sencalasthma.org, backslash CVEC backslash, you'll be able to find more information there. How does pesticide use affect people in our part of the valley? Um, well, as I just mentioned, the air quality in the Central Valley is uh, very poor. And so when we talk about adding things that affect uh, the community who is most affected and disenfranchised here, workers or ag workers who work with pesticides are at higher risk. And so it really is about cumulative impacts. And so when we have these that have a lot of burden, usually suffer the most. And so um, we talk about ag workers and their experience with pesticides. A lot of the issues with pesticides in, in that community um, are because a lot of people are not informed of their rights. Um, sometimes they're being taken advantage. I think it's a major issue, but not just for farm workers, Pesticides are sprayed in fields around homes, and um, everyday folks are affected if they live around these fields. Um, also, pesticides are sprayed in schools, and so children are also put at risk. When people find that there are pesticides being sprayed near their homes or their children at school are being exposed to pesticides, what should they do? 
if you were directly exposed to pesticides, like pesticides came in um, into your eyes or you inhale them or, or you consume them in one way, your reaction would be uh, more immediate, right? So you want to make sure that you wash your eyes, that you wash your hands, that you wash your fruit before you eat it. But a lot of people need to uh, report if you find that pesticides are being sprayed at the wrong time when they should not be sprayed or that they are sprayed too closely or in a manner that is unsafe, then that needs to be reported. Is there somewhere online where people can go and see what their rights are and what these different conditions and specifications are? I'm not sure that locally there is, but there are organizations like the Pesticide Action Network and the Californians for Pesticide Reform is another website um, that people can go to to understand um, their laws. And then also the California Department of Pesticide Regulation is the website that you would want to go um, to look for the actual legal jargon of all of that. The Ag Commissioner is also supposed to be able to share information re regarding when can the farmers around your home spray. Um, and I believe that um, people in communities around farms should be in informed when these pesticides are being sprayed. So the Ag Commissioner is also a place to, to make a complaint, um, as, long, as well as the California Department of Pesticide Regulations is also one. But the Californians for Pesticide Reform website and the Pesticide Action Network are organizations to reach out to if you want a, a better understanding of, of your rights or what is going on um, at the state level or uh, national level about um, enforcement. And so what VIP has done is recently we did a live feed with a presentation about farm workers who use spray um, or who do spray pesticides. And so we talk about their rights for training. Uh, so the law does state that specific training needs to be provided to those who are spraying pesticides. And then we talk about how those things can affect you um, in short term and long term and then um, how to report them currently have the Right to Know campaign on our Facebook page. So if you go to Facebook for VIP, one of our groups is your Right to Know uh, about pesticides in Stanislaus County. And so on that page, we do share um, information about these organizations that work very hard uh, for pesticide reform. We also share about laws and practices and very important things about pesticide that people should know. One of the pesticide campaigns that we are doing right now is the right to know for pesticides at schools. And so the Safe Schools Act is supposed to enforce and educate families about pesticide use at school. And so we're asking parents to please notify their school district um, that they would like to be placed on their email list or somehow be informed either through email, phone, or mail what pesticides and when uh, these pesticides are being sprayed on campus. And so there is a right to know uh, for these parents and employers actually about the pesticides that they spray. And so they're supposed to be doing this type of uh, outreach to these parents and employees um, at the beginning of the school year and then throughout the year. So there should be a 72-hour notice to the parents and the employees before they spray these pesticides. And so we want to make sure that parents are informed about those things um, and know how to hold the districts accountable. A lot of our schools here use um, the product, may not be called Roundup, but it is... Um, um, I believe it is the glyphosate that is the um, active ingredient in Roundup. 
And the, a lot of our schools and districts here in the in Stanislaus County are still using that, even though um, we know that that has shown serious effects in children and in people who have sprayed them and have direct contact with it. And so those are the kinds of things that, that we want people to know is that even though science says that these things are dangerous to our kids in our community, our school districts are still using it. And then so we engage community members about being informed about that and possibly make a change at their local school district or their local school. Pesticides is a big issue. It also goes into like water issues because pesticide can seep into the ground and affect our water. And so it kind of just, like I said, cumulative impacts is a big role when we talk about um a big issue when we talk about pesticides. It adds to um, the current pandemic. It adds to our air quality. It adds a burden to a specific community that is most affected. And it's just a big problem here in the Central Valley. Well, this segues perfectly into my next question, which is about the Drinking Water Research Project. Please tell us about that. Well, VIP is uh, recently moving on to um, into drinking issues. So a lot of our projects are about air quality. We are basically just doing research about drinking water and we know that there are several issues that are caused or that cause the, the quality of our water to diminish. And so that's basically what we're doing is, is uh, engaging community members and sharing what their water issue might be. So if you live in the city, then uh, the city is usually um, on top of testing the water and they have regulations and usually for the most part follow those regulations. But if you live in an unincorporated area, then you're most affected because you are most likely in a well and you're not connected to the water system like city city folks are. And so some of the issues, they just vary and they're very sporadic throughout the county. And so we're trying to just collect that information so that we know how to act and how to um, make water quality equitable issue here in, in our county for those who are most affected. This is KCBP Wesley, 95.5 FM and streaming at kcbpradio.org. Stay tuned for the second half of Women of the Valley with today's guest, Bianca Lopez of Valley Improvement Projects. Now, if you go to the Cal Enviro screen uh, page, which is a map to help assess the needs of a community that are most impacted by various types of factors, you can uh, go to the Cal EPA website and go and see Cal Enviro screen. You can zoom into the map onto your specific city um, street and it'll show you what are the water issues or what may be the contaminant in your water. And so we wanted just to take it a little bit above that step. So we know that what the map says, but we want to know what people's experience is. So even though you live in the city and the water may be regulated and tested, and so maybe the issue for city folks may be how old their pipes are and what how healthy the water is once it comes out of that faucet. It might have a different color or might have a stench or just may not taste well. And so those are the kind of stories that we are collecting um, so that we can tell a bigger story about um, the water issues here in Modesto and within our county. So if anybody out there that is listening has a water concern, please reach out to Valley Improvement Projects. We'd like to track um, what your concern is with your water in your area. 
If you want to find us on Facebook, it's Valley Improvement Projects. If you want to send us an email, it's valleyimprovementprojects at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram at Valley Improvement Projects and on Twitter as well at Valley Improvement Projects. Our phone number is 209-589-9277. Another VIP project is the Stanislaus County Air Monitoring Project. Please tell us about that. That is a project that is uh, in correlation with the AB 617, which allows for community air monitoring. We have a committee. We call our project the Stanislaus Community Air Monitoring Project, also known as SCAMP. Our committee will be meeting a total of six times, and we've already met four out of those six times. Um, and what we are doing is collectively assessing uh, the need for more air monitors, and we're placing these air monitors across the county so that we can have a better representation about what the air quality really is. So right now there are two monitors placed by the air district in Turlock and in downtown Modesto. And so if you live in, in Salida, none of those monitors will really be reading the exact air quality in that area or in Riverbank or in Patterson. So we've placed these monitors in, in such areas where we feel the air monitor is, is needed because they might be in around industry or around diesel truck quarters, just areas that might affect the air quality. And so we have placed these monitors in Salida, um, another one in Turlock, um, a couple here in Modesto, Southside Modesto and Bystrom area. Um, in West Modesto, in the airport district, and we still have a couple more to place. But the point of um, all of that is to have a wide variety of information to collect the data about what our air quality really is in those specific areas. We are also um, in collaboration with UC Berkeley to place black carbon monitor readers. And so we will be placing 13 of those um, monitors also around the county to be able to determine what are the air quality issues and comparing those to just the regular air monitors and seeing if the black carbon monitors read more in certain areas. Which of our local communities are the hardest hit by poor air quality and contaminated drinking water and what are the effects? So the communities that are most affected by the poor air quality and contaminated drinking water together would be the unincorporated areas. Um, they just get less funding, uh, less attention. The whole valley is, is affected by uh, both of these issues, um, but most importantly, the unincorporated areas. And so the effects are usually, you know, seen in our health. A lot of uh, the folks have asthma. 40% of the children here in the valley have asthma. People have um, can get cancer, various types of cancer through uh, poor drinking water or bad air quality. It's just a really big range of, of health effects that can um, be caused by poor air quality and, and poor drinking water. And always um, poor people of color are always most affected in any type of bad situation. So during the pandemic, it's always poor people of color who are most affected. And so it is the same people of color are most affected by poor air quality and contaminated drinking water. What can we do then to promote environmental justice? People can promote organizations like VIP and projects that are 
that help the community be informed. People need to understand that there are certain groups that are most affected. And so making sure that resources are available to those more affected uh, would be one thing that would really help. I think the most important one would be to really stay informed. And also bring to bear on our elected officials, even if you're not as affected personally, knowing that other people in your area are being more severely impacted for their sake, it's important to let your elected officials know, you know this is going on and it needs to change. That is correct. You're listening to Women of the Valley. This is Linda Scheller, and today I'm speaking with Bianca Lopez of Valley Improvement Projects. What is Valley Improvement Projects doing to encourage recycling as opposed to incineration? Most importantly, we try to demystify the perception that incineration is a proper source of energy. And so here locally, we have Covanta, who is the local trash incinerator. And so we inform people about where our trash goes. So at home, we encourage people to recycle and to compost. So if people don't properly recycle or compost, um, then Covanta gets to burn that. And right now, uh, they burn 800 tons of trash on a daily basis. Oh, my. Yeah, it's a large number. And um, we believe that that is one of the reasons why we do not have curbside recycling in Modesto, um, because we have a contract with Covanta to give them our trash for them to burn. It would be a little bit different if we actually reap the benefits of burning that trash, right? So if we were able to use the electricity created out of that, then it may not be that big of an issue. I mean, we would still want to shut shut them down like we do now, but they sell their energy to the most, you know, the highest bidder. And so it's a conflict of interest in, in our eyes. And so what we do is educate folks about that and we prevent greenwashing of that company and we have had some success. So in the past few years, Covanta has no longer been a sponsor of Earth Day. When they used to be a sponsor of Earth Day, we protested them at Earth Day. And uh, we believe that our actions have actually kept them away from uh, sponsoring Earth Day or hosting a booth on Earth Day. We've also changed a lot of the practices at Earth Day. So we did advocate for um, the reduction or the inability to use styrofoam at this event. So we want to create less trash at these events by um, asking folks not to give away like really small items that you know may cause more trash we ask for more recycling bins to be provided at, at big events like this and so i think we've been really successful with that we did have a bring back the blue bin campaign and so we were having people sign a petition that said that they wanted to bring back curbside recycling Curbside recycling was actually first created here in, in Modesto by um, a nonprofit organization who understood that curbside recycling was important. But then uh, Covanta came in, or an incinerator like Covanta came in and then became Covanta to burn our trash, and then curbside recycling just evaporated. And so we also educate folks about the history of our local curbside recycling or the lack of curbside recycling. And we're constantly asked about where can they, can people take certain recyclables? So we do educate folks about the locations that take in specific um, recyclable materials. But I think the most important thing is, is that we've had a campaign against Covanta. We want to shut them down and we want to make sure that companies like Covanta don't get greenwashed. 
composting classes. We do compost. Well, before the pandemic, we were doing composting classes as well because we want to make sure that people understand where their trash comes from and then where it goes. So we also promote reusable materials and the reduction of the single-use items. Please tell us about the Environmental Justice 101 Youth Club. We have a uh, curriculum for youth targeted in 6th through 12th grade, and this curriculum is supposed to engage youth in skill building for leader leadership skills, communication skills, um, get them to think about the effects, local effects in their community um, regarding environmental issues, and then turning that into uh, a justice project. We also go a little bit broader than environmental justice. We talk about global uh, justice and how all of this uh, plays into our uh, local actions. And so we want to make sure that uh, youth can use the tools that they already have to be able to, to have an impact in their local community regarding environmental justice. The objective is for youth to participate in these workshops so that in the end, uh, they have a better understanding of uh, what they would like to do or a role that they would like to play to educate the rest of the community members. On Facebook, VIP has videos in both Spanish and English, Conoce Tus Derechos, Know Your Rights, on a number of topics. We thought um, because of the pandemic, resorting to virtual spaces only during this time, um, we thought it would be a good idea to have a scheduled live session on Facebook. Um, and so we call it Live at Five. And on Fridays, we pick a topic and we present on that topic. And so um, we have been doing them in English and Spanish because we want to make sure it, it, the information is accessible. For these Live at Five sessions, we've talked about uh, Know Your Rights with regards to police surveillance or police brutality. We've also talked about um, your rights to cop watch um, the police in public spaces. And then we did the air quality presentation where we talked about our various air quality projects and uh, the role they play in a larger perspective. On the uh, Your Right to Know group, I did the uh, Right to Know Your Rights when dealing with pesticides, and that was in Spanish only as a request by the community. So um, I do plan on doing that in English. It, it should be coming soon. We look forward to doing a, a full-on webinar presentation where folks are asked to register for uh, the, the Clean Vehicle Rebates Project. Um, and that will be coming up soon. Uh, we're going to make it fun and engaging. We'll be giving out raffle items, some cash prizes as well for those who are participating. Um, we just want to make sure we get the uh, people to be engaged um, and, and view our presentations. You know, this is the only way that we can get the information to folks at this time. And so um, we're trying to do it in a fun way so that we can get um, the, this information to people and to those who are most affected. It's been lots of fun. Um, and it's been something new that we have to learn. So um, we have been... Uh, training ourselves and in collaboration with other nonprofits about how to use Zoom and how to go live and how to be most effective with our events um, in a virtual manner. So are those on your Facebook page? 
Yeah, at the moment, those are only on our Facebook page. We have discussed getting a YouTube page so that we can share them in that form so that if folks don't have a Facebook account or don't use Facebook for whatever reason, we'd like to make it more accessible. Bianca, could you please tell us about the California Environmental Justice Coalition? Uh, the California Environmental Justice Coalition is uh, the biggest coalition of uh, grassroots environmental justice uh, groups here in California. It consists of over 70 uh, organizations. We are very inclusive and we understand the uh, importance and the power of unity. And so that's, that's the objective of this coalition. Um, we want to make sure that we are a united front with the same message. And so one example would be Kettleman City is um, a dump site, a waste dump site here in California in southern uh, part of the Central Valley. And I think at one point, DTSC wanted to bring in toxic waste to another part of, of California. And then uh, that community said, no, nope, don't put it here. And so then they said, let's put it in Kettleman City. And But then because we have this coalition, we said, nope. You can't put it here, and we're not going to be in agreement for you to take it to Kettleman City. We are a strong front at enforcement. We hold DTSC and the EPA and other organizations accountable for what they put in our communities. And it's been in a coalition since 2014. It was founded in Kettleman City. And every year we have a conference, a statewide conference, to, to bring forth um, projects, to share projects that we're all working on, to meet with Cal EPA, environmental justice representatives at the state level. And then we also have regional conferences to support each other in, in the work that we do. Bianca, are you concerned that recent federal changes to the 2020 U.S. Census may be impacting marginalized groups, both in terms of representation and public services available? Yeah, like I said earlier, um, marginalized communities, communities that are most affected are always the poor uh, people of color. And um, this is definitely going to affect, you know, cutting it short for a month um, is a big deal because that means that um, outreach workers will not have that month to reach to more, more people. I think that is very unfortunate and I am very concerned. I mean, I've been concerned with, with this administration since since its uh, beginning in 2016. This is a, a serious issue, and I think that we need to remember that on November 3rd, when it's time to put our pen to paper to vote and take all of this into consideration. In the past few years, have you seen an increase in xenophobia and distrust directed against immigrants and communities of color? Yeah, I think, um, so we've had uh, an immigrant march here in Modesto a couple years ago and you know people came out to counter protest that and so we've known that people with um, the opposing view are have always been here. Identity Europa, um, the organizer is from Oakdale. Uh, there will be a uh, straight pride event here in Modesto. It, it would be second annual so we know that these are things that happen in the valley but since uh, Trump came into office, they have been more visible, uh, more aggressive. I'm not going to say more brave because they, they, uh, 
they act very cowardly. But even recently with the Black Lives Matter marches and rallies, um, you can see how people have portrayed these peaceful protests into violent riots. Uh, even our uh, city mayor has called um, this very peaceful rally a riot. The, the rally that happened or the march that happened in Oakdale became violent because counter protesters were verbally taunting uh, the youth. And actually one person, one white male did end up punching a black young man. And so there are repercussions for people of color in these, in these incidents um, when we should be the ones being protected. And it's just been a lot more recent and a lot more in your face. Uh, so it has been very concerning. But I am very proud of the youth who have come out and continue to come out to speak against it. There is a counter protest pretty much for everything and anything these days. And uh, you will see that it is those people that are most affected by these actions that are stepping up to say, yeah, basta, like that's enough. This is not going to be okay with it. It's not okay with us. And we're going to let you know. So yes, there has been more, but then we have not allowed it to just happen uh, without speaking up ourselves. How can we build a more inclusive and equitable society? Increasing the minimum wage would help. We can advocate for things like that. Free college, that would also help uh, make it more equitable for low-income people. Recycling would be a big issue here in Modesto. Providing more information to people of color, uh, low income, of the effects of you know poor air quality or pesticide use uh, would also be helpful. And I think people just need to be open to those ideas and, and be able to support them. What would you like more people to understand concerning immigrants and undocumented workers? That we are treated unfairly, that we are taken advantage of, um, we are expendable, and that people need to speak up against those injustices. It's bewildering and horrible that at the same time they're deemed essential workers and yet marginalized and even criminalized at the same time as their work is considered invaluable. That is correct. And I mean, you can see it now. Um, the air quality is very poor. Um, I know that our air monitors were reading, you know, level two or level three when the smoke was right in our face. And so um, some people rely on these air monitors um, to read the quality of air. And I just kept thinking, oh, these workers are going to keep being, they're going to work outside without the proper uh, gear. I mean, at this point, I think they need an oxygen mask uh, oh. to be working outside. Um, but they are asked to provide, you know, themselves with uh, PPE uh, during COVID-19 a lot of the times. And so now with the air quality like it is today, I, I can't really fathom how anybody would allow for people to be continuing to work outside in, in these conditions. And then yet we take that for granted and then we continue to criminalize them and and just talk very poorly uh, about them. It's, it's mind boggling. I don't know how people cannot see the connection between all of this. And our agricultural economy is dependent upon them. I don't think uh, the ranchers and landowners and farmers and anyone involved in agricultural production 
would be able to exist without the work that's being provided by no. the same marginalized group that's being vilified. Yeah, we've seen, you know, farmers having to um, just basically waste food because they don't have enough workers to pick the food. Um, and so, you know, even though people complain about, um, you know, people being here illegally and taking our jobs, that's not true because we see that nobody is stepping up to take those jobs when they were in need. Yeah, that's been proven again and again historically. What about the dreamers? How does VIP stand on the issue of, of dreamers? We believe that um, immigration reform is important and it has not been addressed uh, by the Democrats or the Republicans. And it's just very uh, unfortunate situation where these youth were brought to this country um, when they were young and didn't have a, a choice. And I'm not sure why we are criminalizing them either. Um, a lot of them are, um, you know, they're, they're DACA kids. Um, and I don't, I don't know why we would target anybody that's trying to do, um, good in their community or to improve themselves. And we support, um, the dreamers. Um, and there are many amongst us and luckily, um, you know, my parents were fortunate to be able to, um, make sure that I have documentation. Um, but I would have been a dreamer had they not done that, had they not been, had the privilege to do that. I was, um, brought here when I was three and didn't have any documentation until I was 13. Um, and so I know what it's like uh, to fear every day of of security, um, not being able to speak up for injustices because you feel like you will be targeted. And now with um, even Trump in office, um, when he claims that he's going to be looking at social media um, and getting rid of our um, residential card because we speak up against a government, it's just really um, frightening, mm -hmm. even for those who are documented. So. I think people need to understand that um, that dreamers are um, in need of support. A lot of these dreamers are now our young professionals. Yeah. And I also know that just looking at the situation from an economic standpoint, our country would be shooting itself in the foot to, you know, not give them a path to citizenship because they're crucial segments of our society. Yeah, hmm. makes no sense. None. Do you have anything you'd like to add, Bianca, about um, moving forward so we can have a more inclusive and equitable society? I think um, the youth are doing a great, uh, a great role. They're playing a great role in our community. Um, they are stepping up. They are informing themselves. They're creating uh, new groups to be inclusive um, to the ideas of equity um, in our society and we need to be more open to listening to the youth. Uh, they are also making sure that their voice is being heard at government uh, government meetings like our city council, our board of supervisor meetings, and I think everybody needs to come out um, and support 
um, the youth in, in that way as well. And for the elders, um, we need to not vilify them as well um, and, and be a, a resource to them. And a lot of them are running for office now, and I'm very proud of them for that. That's very exciting, yes. Uh, and so, you know, supporting supporting them um, is really important um, here locally because it will show them that that they have a say and that they can change the way that things are right now. Our guest today was Bianca Lopez speaking to us about Valley Improvement Projects. Bianca, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Linda. I appreciate the time, and I look forward to sharing more as, uh, as we do more here in the community. Great. You've been listening to Women of the Valley on KCBP Community Radio, 95.5 FM, and online at kcbpradio.org. This has been Leah Hassett and Linda Scheller. We hope you'll catch us next time on Women of the Valley. Thanks for listening. Our music is Tin Can Trap by Chad Crouch.